All right, everybody. I've got uh, Kevin Keeter on the podcast with me today. Kevin is a cousin of mine um, out in uh, Oklahoma. Durant, Oklahoma, Kevin? Correct. All right. Um, of course, Kevin and I have known each other for many, many years. You know, we uh, from time to time we'd go to family reunions and um, get together and go to Six Flags or uh, water parks or whatever. Um, but as we've grown up and, uh, you know, had families of our own, we both somehow built up our own businesses. In Kevin's case, uh, he runs a company that's a plumbing contracting company out in Oklahoma. And the reason I wanted to have this podcast today was this would be the first time that I've talked to someone on this podcast who is outside of the domain of uh, web development, web software, web, web design. For years, I've been wanting to talk to someone in the building trades because I think there's so many parallels between the kinds of uh, work that we do on the web and the kinds of work that uh, gets done uh, building, uh, you know, restaurants and uh, uh, commercial properties and everything that goes into that. So I just want to talk to Kevin about all sorts of different stuff pertaining to how you bid on projects, how you keep costs under control, how you manage teams. Um, and when we find some parallels between our two industries, I really want to kind of dive into that and get into detail because I, I think that people like me could run better companies if we talk to people in your realm since yours has been around so much longer than the people on the Internet have. I've always thought that. At any rate, yeah. oh, that's an intro. Um, Kevin, could you say a little bit about your company and what sort of work you do, maybe the size of your team? Um, in particular, one thing I'm always interested in is how you get new business. Okay. We uh, are a, like you said, we're a, a plumbing contractor. We do uh, new commercial uh, construction, and uh, we have we fluctuate depending on our workload, uh, how many people we have. And we range from anywhere from around four to around, we've been as high as 15 before. Um, and as far as our work and how we get work, it's uh, all bid work. Some of it's negotiated uh, with owners or um, architects, contractors that we know. But uh, new work that we look at is typically found uh, our we are a subcontractor, so we are we go through typically a general contractor. So a general contractor sends us a bid invitation for a particular project, uh, or an architect, or there's also bid services that we can uh, subscribe to that uh, let us know if an owner, architect, you know, whoever's doing a project uh, in our area, whatever area we decide that we want to be notified about if it's within 50 miles or 200 miles or of our home base. Uh, that is typically how we get, get work is through those services or through those contractors that we've done work for in the past. Uh, send us the, an invitation. You don't have to have an invitation to bid on them, uh, but uh, that's typically how we find out about new work. Is there a lot of regulation in the bidding process for, for jobs like this? Well, uh, it, it, there's, it kind of depends. Uh, there's two different types of, uh, let me explain the difference between a, a general contractor and a construction manager. Uh, they, they can be one and the same. They, they're just, uh, the way the job is handled is different. So uh, an owner could put a, 
say they want to build, uh, let's say a uh, school district wants to build a new school, they can hire a construction manager, uh, which is basically a general contractor that's um, working for the school, and uh, they just manage the project for the owner. And what happens is you put the job out for bid, and all the individual subcontractors, whether it's plumbing, electrical, mechanical, concrete, roofing, all these different things, they will bid directly to the owner. And uh, in that case, there's a little more, I don't know if it's regulation as much, but if you bid directly to the owner, all these commercial jobs are typically, you have to get a bond to bid them. So you have to have some financial uh, wherewithal to even turn in a bid. And let's say typical, uh, you have to basically put up about 5% of what your bid is. So in a, in a uh, construction management, when you're bidding to the owner, every subcontractor has to get their own bond or their assurance that they can complete the project. It's basically an insurance policy. Uh, if you bid, a, if you have an owner that, that wants to put a job out for bid uh, to general contractors, then you may have 10 general contractors that are bidding to the owner, giving the owner a hard number that they'll do the whole job for. And in that case, all the subcontractors, we would turn in our numbers to the uh, general contractor. The general contractor then packages all those numbers and he uh, gets his own bond. So from, from my standpoint, I would a lot of times rather bid a job that was construction managed and where we have to get a bond because I can get a bond. And it really weeds out a lot of people that can't get one. And there's a can, lot of con you can compete better against other other contractors like yourself because you're in a position maybe you're larger you're financially more stable you can get that bond other people can't so you can get that job easier that's correct and you get more uh, it's more apples and apples uh, on the type of contractor you will get uh, if it's a construction managed process and two a lot of people won't bid those jobs just because uh, you, your butt is on the line. They have a, a financial ramification. You know, if you fail at some point and the bonding company takes over, they're coming after you, and they'll come after your finances and whatever you have to replenish what they lost by taking a gamble on you. So a lot of people aren't willing to do that. Uh, and and if you are, then you can make some money by doing that. See, there's not any sort of structure like that when, when we're doing projects on the internet. So if I go and build a website for a client or build a website for a large organization, you know, a bunch of e-commerce components and uh, connections to different APIs and web services and so forth, it's very complicated, difficult work, but there's no structure for it. There's, right. no, there's no bonding structure. There's There's barely even a concept of general contractor and subcontractors. I mean, there's just... There's just contractors uh, or there's employees at a company uh, getting the work done. So it's completely unregulated. And perhaps uh, perhaps that's a problem for my industry because it's so loose. Well, and I see that in our industry, uh, the trades that are not licensed or regulated. So uh, let's just say, for instance, plumbing, electrical, and mechanical traditionally uh, require a state license. And uh, not only a state license, but a city license in whatever city you decide to work in. So we're somewhat regulated. But 
if you were to take a, um, let's say, uh, someone that puts up drywall in Oklahoma, they don't have to be licensed. Uh, they just, in the last couple of years, made uh, roofers get a license. Uh, concrete guys don't have to have a license. Framers, all these, you know, in these trades, you can see that same problem where uh, there's such an inconsistent um, quality that you get uh, with with unlicensed trades. The uh, the bidding process. You're saying that um, in a lot of cases, you're you're giving a, a hard number. So you're giving a number to someone that you are going to have to stick to. Uh, yes. You're on the line for that. And if it's a big job, you got several contractors working under you, uh, and those guys are going to get paid no matter what, right? Uh, you know, you got to pay them uh, in order to keep them uh, available to you for future work. So you eat it if something happens on the project. So how, how do you control it? First of all, there's two questions. Like, how do you bid in the first place? Uh, what sort of systems or best practices do you employ to get your numbers right? And the second thing is, how do you control those costs once you're doing the work? Well, uh, in the bidding process, we get a set of documents. And they typically, the, in our industry, and what we do, the architect is the, is the main key for us. Uh, we're primarily working for the art, architect ultimately because the architect, uh, they do the drawings, they provide, and engineers, they provide the specifications on specifically what type of even material that we can use. Uh, so we have to read the spec book, uh, we have to comb through there and find out if we're using plastic pipe or copper pipe or steel pipe um, and, and to what type of insulation we're going to put on it, things of that nature. We have to read the specs, uh, which they're typically pretty general, but uh, in certain circumstances we have to use different piping materials, so we have to find out um, what that difference is. And just, just for instance, I had a job we did here uh, in Durant, where I live, we did the new high school here a couple of years ago, and uh, the difference in piping material uh, was about $70,000 just for one section of the job. And uh, so, if you know, if you don't pick something like that up or make a mistake, then we're talking about a you know, pretty good hickey that you don't, you know, you don't feel like eating those, those type of costs. But, uh, and, and tell you, we had uh, the set of plans for that project. There were three rolls of plans, and each set of plans was about an inch and a half thick. And then we had, uh, it was either two or three spec books that were about four inches thick a piece. So, uh, you know, it's just a lot of information to comb through. Uh, and sometimes when you're looking at the prints, they they typically would state uh, on the plumbing prints everything included in plumbing, but that's not always the case. Uh, since our our uh, our work can can cross over with the let's say the mechanical guy, uh, where we may be responsible to install the condensate piping from the air conditioning units, and uh, that piping may be on his plan and not on my plan. So we have to have a full set of well, like we call them bid documents. We have to have a full set of prints and specifications. Uh, it, it does take some time to comb through those. And for me, to bid, uh, to be accurate, it's just to quantify everything. 
uh, if, if we count up how many you know, uh, toilets we have, how many drinking fountains and sinks and what specific types of sinks uh, and piping also. If we have drainage piping, if it's inside or outside the building, if we have to hang piping, uh, you know, how high do we have to hang it? And uh, So all those things, I need to know uh, the footage amounts because I can, I can get pricing on I have a different supply houses I can use to give me what the cost of the piping is going to be, what the cost of the fixtures and everything is going to be. But uh, I need to know how difficult it is going to be to put it in. If we're going to be in a 10-foot tall building or if we're going to be in a 25-foot tall and we've got to hang it hang it up near the roof line, then, uh, you know, all that is just takes it's more difficult so uh the first thing i do is break everything down i want to know how much drainage pipe how much water pipe what size the water pipe drainage pipe is going to be uh you know either how deep in the ground or how high in the air it has to hang or, or be installed so just for me to bid it uh accurately i just have to quantify everything i need like i say uh if that's where if i make a mistake that's where i missed it yeah uh, I would rather miss it by 10% and have all the quantities correct than miss 10% of the job and really just be out of luck. Uh, so as far as bidding, uh, that's the first thing I try to do. We call them takeoffs. We try to do the takeoffs. And you can actually, in our industry, you can pay someone uh, or they have software that help bidding software that helps do that exact thing. Or there's some services you can pay that will do the takeoffs for you, and uh, and give you those quantities, and all those things as well. Uh, once the once the job starts, it, it depends on how big of a job we're doing. Uh, we we do quite a bit of school work where they're building new schools, and uh, since they're so large, uh, they're broke up in sections, and we'll just say they're broke up into A, B, C, D. Uh, sections of the job and so when I'm tracking what we've I take what I've bid and then I break it down uh, into each section uh, so it's it's hard to uh, I've learned this that I cannot manage what I cannot measure so I have to get it to a place I can measure it before I can manage it that's one of our biggest problems so I, my, my company I have um kind of systematically shifted the company away from work that I cannot quantify. Right. Um, and, you know, that's a loss for me in some ways. What it means is I don't do a lot of design work anymore. So, you know, if you want a website built, you probably are going to a different company to have it designed. Uh, that's all subjective stuff. I mean, how it right. looks and feels and that sort of thing. Um, I can't, can't very well quantify that. I usually lose money on that part because it you know, a customer is just not, not done until the design is finished, until it looks the way they want it to look. The other thing is that that component of a project is right in front of them. Um, they experience that the design part. How it's built and how the pieces fit together and how they work, the quantifiable materials, those are, those are hidden behind a wall. They're, they're up in a ceiling or they're below the floor. They don't see it. They don't care. Uh, they just want to know if I hit my numbers or not. So I have right. shifted the company away from that stuff and more toward quantifiable things. Um, has that been, you know, maybe in your in your sector that's not been a problem. For me, I can see that there's some types of work that I, I lose out on 
because the work I do is invisible. Well, uh, I, I've done the same thing. I, uh, like I said, we primarily do the new commercial construction. There's all kinds of different facets to what we could do. And uh, in the past, I've had, uh, we've also done service work, which we typically, we don't do now, except for very, you know, uh, specific people uh, that we would do some type of service work for. But uh, for a time frame, uh, I know that we were, there was a big demand for that in our area, so I started a service company. And uh, service, I just, uh, the way I like to structure my business uh, it's service work, and uh, we don't get along that well. Uh, so I can I can relate from what you're saying. I relate that to the service work on my side. That one thing I learned that really took a lot of weight off of my shoulders was not everyone's my customer. Yeah. So and that was just very. Yeah. Uh, it just freed me up because I was always concerned about not getting every single job or opportunity or uh, so. The service work is actually something that I uh, I actually sold that portion of the business about three years ago, just because it's too sporadic and too demanding. Uh, if I can't uh, plan for it and plan ahead for it, I don't like doing it. Uh, the last like uh, the last, minute. The last so. podcast I did, I had a I had a web designer and developer who was just an 18 year old kid. He was maybe five months out of high school. And one of the first things he told me was it, he was just he was interested to have learned that not everybody was his customer. Um, and I was annoyed with him because he's 18 and he's already figured that out. And it took me I don't know how many years to get straight, straight on that point. You know, I'm, I lost a lot of sleep and a lot of money and all that because I thought everybody had to be my customer. And right. if I turned anybody away, I was going to lose money. You make a lot more money when you find your client profile and you serve them. Um, you you working uh, you, you're working a lot with um, people who have somebody else has gone out and done most of the sales process in, in the sense that if you're working with a general contractor they're bringing you in they have a relationship with you from previous jobs uh, is that fair to say it is I do a lot of that too uh, you know if we do a lot of software development and uh, sort of implementation work of someone else's design or concept uh, that means some other uh, consulting firm or some other design shop is coming back to us to do another implementation for them. So I found that that's a really good way to grow my business. It's easier to maintain that kind of relationship um, and let somebody else go out and get the customer. And I serve that client who deals with the customer. Um, how much of that do you think you do versus how much uh, you work directly with uh, um, someone who wants to build a new property or a restaurant or whatever? Well, uh, I would say there'd be a very small percentage of uh, from the well from the new new work. I would say very small percentage because uh, they do have to, in the same sense, they have to get an architect to even get a design together. Uh, because the first thing they want to know from me is what's it going to cost. Well, before I can tell them what it's going to cost, I have to know what the drawing looks like yeah. and what their specifications are, and so. Uh, where I actually communicate directly with an owner to, to make a, a sales uh, sales pitch basically is more in remodeling. Uh, we do we do some uh, renovations, remodeling, and in that case, they fairly you know they already have a floor plan or they already have an idea, and I can design something for them uh, 
uh, if it's not building the whole structure, I can I can design our portion of the work with no problem, and uh, I can make a sale that way. Uh, so I would say probably five percent or ten percent at most would be me dealing directly with uh, direct, directly with an owner or a customer that would want me to help design and, and start you know do the work specifically for them. Yeah. In the bid process you were talking about a minute ago, um, that's, I mean, you're doing a lot of work. Uh, do you have assistants who help you do the work of, you know, calculating the quantities and uh, determining, you know, stuff like, all right, we got we to gotta hang this pipe uh, 10 feet higher than we normally would in a, in a, a traditional place because this is such a high ceiling uh, structure. Do you have assistants to help you with that or is that all you? Is that the main job that you perform for your company? I I uh, do all the bidding myself, uh, so I don't uh, I don't have any help uh, quantifying and bidding the bidding process. But only part I would say that I have help with is uh, when I get a bid invitation, I immediately forward that to a supplier who will supply the fixtures, um, and they will typically do all like let's say toilets and urinals, lavatories, water heaters drinking fountains, the sinks, all the faucets and all the specific little items that go with that. Uh, they will quantify those and send them back to me. I just, I double check them uh, to make sure that's accurate. But as far as uh, the bid process, you know, that's where I make all the money is when I bid the job. So uh, I just have not been able to turn that loose, uh, turn that over to anybody else to do. So um, and two, if, if with the system that I have, the way I do it, I can bid a job fairly quickly. So it's not too laborsome to uh, for me to do it. I, it's, it's fairly I'm fairly fast at it. Okay. Well, you know what happens if you eventually sell the company you've built? I, I know you, and I know that you buy and sell. You've bought and sold probably everything: uh, living, dead, animate, you know, big, small, what have you. So eventually, you're probably going to walk away from this company that you built, or maybe hand it on to, uh, pass it on to to someone you know uh, to to someone in your family to to run. But um, if you're the the bid person and that can't be turned over to anybody, how do you walk away from this? Uh, this is a question I ask myself because there's some parts of the work I do for my company that couldn't be handed off to someone else, and you couldn't buy Soul Space without my input and still get the same company. Sure. Uh, well, I, one thing I've tried to do with, with all the stuff I'm involved in is uh, I tried to get it, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, get it dumbed down so that anyone can understand it. So uh, it's, it's not that I can't turn it over to them. I just haven't. Uh, I, can, I, I do have, uh, I, can, I can teach someone the system I have. Uh, and, and you know, I'm not. It's not real sophisticated. I've actually built an Excel spreadsheet that that uh, I can plug all my information into uh, in a very short amount of time, and I can build in you know uh, estimates of what that that should cost. Uh, or I can also keep up with uh, the cost of materials and labor. Uh, so it's uh, it's really just it's real simple. Uh, uh, it, it would be easy to train someone for that. So. I've set it up to where uh, I can train someone probably, uh, you know, one or two or three jobs I can bid, you know, we can bid together and they would have it and I can, I can walk away. 
How did you how did you sell the service part of your company? You mentioned that a minute ago. How did you sell off a, a part of your company? Uh, well, I, what I, when I set that up, I actually set that portion up under a different name. So, uh, and what I did was on the service portion is I actually bought a franchise. Uh, and one thing we know we talk talk about systems and things like that. I wanted to start a service company and. Uh, I, I just figured it, I calculated in my mind that for me to set up a system to make the service business work uh, profitably, that I would need to take off about two weeks to design a system and uh, checks and balances to make the thing work. And the problem I ran into is I didn't have two weeks and I couldn't find two weeks anywhere and I couldn't borrow it from anybody. Yeah. So. Uh, I started looking into a franchise, and uh, what happened was I was able to buy a franchise for less than what taking off two, you know, less than taking two weeks would have cost me. Oh, so, uh, so that's what I did. I bought the franchise. It was under a different name, and then when I got ready to sell, he uh, was a guy that had worked with me for a little while. He lived uh, about sixty miles away in a different town. He wanted to start his own business. And so uh, I got him hooked up with the franchise. He started to, he, he bought a franchise for his location, started up, and, and, uh, and I mentioned earlier I did the, the new high school here in Durant, which at that same time, I could tell I could make more money with all my resources on that big project than I could trying to run the service business. Yeah. So uh, I contacted him, and I just sold it to someone who was already in the business. Okay. And, and, with the service, uh, you're typically, you know, I just basically sold a client list. I sold them a phone that was already ringing. So uh, that's basically what the value was for that business. But there were some systems built into that franchise that you acquired that you passed on. Absolutely. And since he was already a member of that franchise, it was just super smooth transition. Um, and I wouldn't have traded it for anything. You know, being part of a franchise, of course, you have to pay them some royalties. Uh, but it was just uh, amazing what all I learned and has helped me in just tons of other areas. And it wasn't until then that I learned that not everyone was my customer. I had never heard that and uh, sure didn't understand it until I went through some of their basic training on uh, how, to, how to be profitable and how to run your, you know, run your own service business. I think someone smart one of these days is going to do this on the web. They're going to, they're going to take my type of business model, which is quite common, they're going to find some way to franchise it. Um, but the challenge is with franchising, you're, you're taking a model and you're setting it up in a physical location and um, you, you're, you're embedded in a community somehow. And in the case of my type of work, I mean, it's all, it's all virtualized. Uh, we got clients all over the world and they don't really care where we, uh, where we live and work. I'm not sure how a franchise would would translate except for having uh, a concept of systems that you, you just drop in and you turn a key and then you're up and running. Uh, I don't know. Right. It could, could be interesting to think about one of these days. But um, how do you control costs? Uh, so you you've got you know you got to measure uh, you know for every foot of pipe that translates into I, I mean is there are there labor costs connected to each unit? Uh, how are you controlling your costs and keeping your contractors from uh, eating up all your profit? Well, uh, 
what I do is, is try to break the job up into segments. If it's not already broken up into different sec- sections or segments, uh, I'll break it up. So I can decide, uh, I'll break it up into what, uh, let's just say, piping that's outside the building. So let's we have a structure, we're going to have to run piping from that building, water and sewer, out to wherever we tie on to the city or municipalities, uh, water and sewer connections. So I can even break that section down. There's a certain footage, labor, material cost that's associated with uh, each one of those pipes. And, you know, it, it, you can get very detailed, but sometimes I just I go blind on the numbers. So I, I sometimes I'll take a bigger pipe and uh, just manage a bigger piece. So uh, we'll, I will break down what we do under the slab before they pour the concrete. I'll have that as a section. I'll, I'll also have a different section of what we're doing in the walls, what we do above the ceiling, and then what we would do at the end of the job where we set all the fixtures and cook everything up. And what we do as far as in almost every one of our projects, we have uh, what they what we call a schedule of values. And we have to present the schedule of values to the uh, architect through the construction manager or general contractor, whoever, whatever type of project it is. But it breaks down the cost uh, of exactly what I'm saying. What what we're doing outside, let's say, what's under the slab, because that's a uh, we build on these to get paid for these type of projects. It's progressive progressive billing. So every month we're going to turn in a pay request, and on our pay request we're going to turn in the schedule of values that says. Uh, in section A, we have completed 50% of the underground uh, plumbing, and they already know because they already have a copy of that schedule of values. So when we turn in that pay request, there's someone from the architect's office or the construction manager or contractor goes out on the job site and verifies if we've completed that 50% or 30% or whatever percentage of whatever section before they will approve our pay application. And when we do that, that's when I can check. Uh, I've already allotted so much money to, let's say, Section A, the underground uh, plumbing portion is $10,000. If we're halfway done, I know that we have $5,000 allotted for that. So I look at, uh, at least on a monthly basis, of what are our costs, what material cost, and what labor cost do we have, uh, and we track that through a system we have also, and if we're, we have, you know, $2,000 in labor and material, and I'm getting, you know, I'm charging, I'm billing for 5000 then we're on track, but if I, you know, if I have 8000 worth of expenses, and I'm sending a bill in for 5000 we can't let, that can't go on for very long, so, uh, I actually, we can do it on a, a daily and a weekly basis, uh, and sometimes we do, but uh, it's it's a lot easier to see on a monthly basis uh, as far as how progress is going. Because our projects, for instance, the, the high school here in Durant, it lasted for 24 months. So looking at it on a monthly basis, was I was fine with that. Uh, and I have a project, I have some projects going now that, May only last four or five days. I have one that another school. I have two schools going now, but the one we're on right this minute, uh, it's going to last about twelve months. So, uh, 
I just try to break it up into pieces, the labor and material, and uh, just as I'm since we since we build on progression, percentage of completion. That's how I track my cost and profitability is the same way we build. So I, I know every month if we're profitable or not. Yeah. Okay. And you know what happens when you're doing an evaluation for a given month and you find that you're you're over. Um, some an error was made somewhere. Uh, what do you do? Well, we find you know obviously find out what did we go over on material or on labor. Uh, material a lot of times if we went over on material that was my fault I messed up during the bidding process uh, if we went over on labor uh, I'm not sure whose problem that is until I investigate that uh, and a lot of times things will start to surface so are my guys are they not getting there on time yeah. typically I pay by the a lot of jobs for my employees I have to pay them by the hour and yeah. subcontractors I can obviously pay them based off of a, a bid that they give me a hard bid but uh, the guys that are paid by the hour we have to find out how are they spending their time and uh, you know uh, if they're you find out that they're driving 45 miles to go have lunch every day <laughs> they, they write down that they took a 15 minute lunch and so uh, and that's it happens all the time it's amazing but uh so we find out where the problem is, and it's typically not in material. So it's uh, it's in labor somewhere, or it could be equipment rental or equipment expense of some sort that uh, I either miscalculated or my guy, my foreman that's in the field uh, is not managing his, his time very well. And, and when I've had that be the case, what I end up doing is I just go on the job. And so I, I'm on the job for a few days to get it lined back out and... Uh, I have a better idea of, uh, you know, because it's hard sometimes. I'm just looking at numbers, and uh, I don't understand the conditions. I've been on the job before, too, where uh, it wasn't any of our fault. It was uh, other other subcontractors. Let's say, like, the masonry subcontractor or the drywall guy uh, was just really messing us up. They would... Uh, uh, they were in the way, or they they had uh, you know product in the way, or they had employees in the way, or uh, you know it, it, it's just so many different things. There's such a coordination of so many different people on a big job like that that uh, that there all there can be all kinds of factors that may not that may be out of our control. But uh, if that is the case, then I have to address that also with the construction manager or the the owner or someone to we've got our sequence of operation out of whack if we're in each other's way yeah. so uh, and two I will tell you on, on typically on our bigger commercial projects uh, we have a weekly progress meeting on site so the construction manager today I was at a, a progress meeting on a, one of the school jobs we're doing and so we go over that we can address any of those problems and we have had to do that where we can say you know you guys may not be aware of it but the concrete guy has ran over and broke 15 of our pots taken out of the ground and you know we're going to have to repair those you owe us you know somebody's going to owe us thousands of dollars because they've torn up our stuff like you know so how often does uh, how often do you have to get legal how often do you have to get a lawyer involved to sort something out 
I've uh, uh, rarely, very rarely. Uh, that's the, the good thing about the going through the con- the contractor or the construction manager is they have the ability to make the decision. Uh, let's say if that's the case, the concrete guy, the concrete truck that they were pouring concrete backs over three of our pipes, breaks them off, and uh, we give them a bill. You know, we, we break we have to break it down whenever it's uh, what we call a back charge, and uh, we break down our material labor. We turn it into the construction manager, and the construction manager just automatically takes it out of the concrete guy's pay. So we have an advocate, the construction manager is on our side you know of course they they have a you know we we both plead our case and then they decide uh, who's involved uh, I, I, I just last week hired an attorney to go out for a guy that, an individual that uh, owes me some money from from uh, a while back but other than that specific case very rarely do we have to we everyone's under contract and it says that in our contractual obligations that we will protect one another's work. So if they tear something up, it was in their contract that, that they would pay for it if they did. Uh-huh. So that's one great thing, too, about talk about regulations or uh, structure anyway in, the, in this process is I really like the commercial work because it is structured. It does have agreements, contracts that are signed uh, that help help guide us through these things they, you know they answer a lot of questions uh, that, that may come up well there's a in that structure there's a lot of insulation between you the vendor and uh, the the actual end client in the sense that um, let's see if I can put this in in reasonable terms uh, we we frequently try to filter out clients that would not be a good fit uh, in and I don't I don't have any layers in between I have that many layers in between my work and the end client maybe there's just a designer or maybe there's a consulting shop who's uh, folding my solution into a, a bigger array of solutions you know for maybe a political campaign or something but there's not a lot of insulation so I've got to be careful about who I work with if I start dealing with someone who's a little bit crazy in the head um, there's not a lot of structural you know insurance and insulation between me and that crazy so I just have to not do it in the first place. But in your right. case, you could have a complete nut job on the other end writing the checks, but you've got so much structure in between with uh, so many checks and balances that are established and sort of agreed to by all the people in the trade that um, maybe you don't even get to uh, experience that, that, that person's crazy. I, 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 in the commercial end of it, no, you're right. We, there is quite a bit of structure there and insulation that helps us... Uh, helps us through all that and it's great also that in this contract it not only says what I'm required to do it also says what the owner's required to do so uh, you know typically you know it's uh, it's one way but in, the, in, in what we deal with it's 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 two ways here so uh, if we're working for the working for someone and let's say the owner decides not to uh, pay us on time we it's set up in our in our contract on when when we'll get paid, uh, what day of the month we turn in our, our request, what day they'll be approved, and then so many days later we should have payment. I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, it's... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, our, our system is I'll pay you when I'm good and ready, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, the good thing, uh, and I don't know how good it is, but if they don't pay us by a certain time frame, we can walk off the job, and we don't have to come back until they uh, until we're paid. And they're still under an obligation. They can't just go hire someone else to finish it. But you're still uh, losing money. I mean, you, you, you had a team assembled to do a job, and you're going to have to walk off that job, and you're going to have idle time. Um, and those guys are going to walk over and do other work and leave the job, and you're not going to have access to them. Um, and how will you rein them back in and get them back on the job when that client catches up and pays? So what do you do about that? Yeah, that is that is a problem. And even even if it's not from a from a pay standpoint, let's say the and well, I'll address the, I'll address that first. Uh, it even if you have the that's why I was saying it's not all good. Even if you can walk off the job, it's not the most effective. Like you're saying, you already have the guys there. You already have your material. You already have the, the ball is rolling. And to leave is going to be a nightmare to get it all put back together again. So uh, it is just—it is one of those. Uh, it's just a tough call. If you're having a little bit of trouble with the uh, with the owner or uh, construction manager or something like that, it's really a tough call to pull off and go somewhere else. Uh, it, you just have to evaluate each situation uh, individually. So if you if it's worth pulling off or if it's worth staying there, because even if you stay there, let's say, and you keep keep working, you complete the job and you haven't gotten paid. I can I can file legally. I can file a lien on the project. So uh, and typically these projects we're doing since they are new construction, there's some type of construction loan on the project. And if we if we in which we normally could and would do uh, is file a lien on the property before it goes from construction loan financing to a permanent type of financing. Uh, the lending institution will not take it from construction loan to permanent financing with liens on it. So we actually stop them from being able to move forward with their permanent financing by putting a lien on the property. But that's a legal action that's expensive for you to undertake, right? That's eating into your profit. It well, uh, it can be in in any circumstance we've uh, looked like that was going to happen. What we've done is if we we will uh, send out a letter and we just call it a notice of intent to lien, and we just tell them, hey, we're fixing to put a lien on your property, and that usually gets the ball rolling. So uh, <laughs> uh, nobody likes to hear that. We turn a website off. Uh, yeah, some, someone on my podcast, and I don't know how, who it was, I forget, but that. I said, well, what happens if, if all else fails and you can't get paid? Well, I turn the website off. They usually come back and um, cut me a check pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. I used to, I worked for a guy early on, and I asked him that same question. I was about to start my own business, and he did primarily new uh, new houses, new construction for, for residences. And uh, <clears throat> he said he would just go to their house and, and sit on the front porch or just sit in the garage and just lay on the floor and kind of, kick his legs and flop around a little bit at crazy. <laughs> and he said it didn't take very long at all. They'd write that check and he'd be on his way. So. Well, wouldn't it be uh, great if you could just flip a switch and the toilets would stop flushing? Well, uh, you know, it would be great, but, uh, and, and even have looked into some of those before, but if after we install it, if they don't pay it, we go take it back, that's a criminal. We've, we can't do that. So, uh, 
I have looked into that, and uh, they it's can like, file. It's also not ball. brand new anymore. It's messy. It's been used. You don't want to use right. the toilet. <laughs> That's right. You know, one thing that we do, I will point this out that we've done in the past at the end of the job that's a good point uh, let's say that we've been paid all along everything's looking great we're coming up to the end of the job and that's when a big bulk of our expense is when we set all the fixtures we're buying all the toilets and the valves and the water heaters all these things that are real expensive and uh, we put them in well we're done and if we and let's say we're having trouble getting paid at that point there's not a whole lot we can do then. We, I mean, it's not like we can stop work because we're done. So, uh, and, and typically on those jobs, that would be about, that portion of the job is about a third of the overall project. So, uh, it's a good chunk. So, what I've done in that case, if I have any concerns of that, is since we are regulated, licensed trade, we have to have inspections. So, at every stage of construction, I have to call for an inspection. And what I've done in that case, at the end of the job, having trouble getting paid, I do not call for my inspection. And if I don't call for my inspection, the tenant or the owner cannot get a certificate of occupancy. So the city will not allow them to occupy the building until they get a certificate of occupancy. Oh, yeah, so um, I'm just, I'm just delayed my inspection and uh, they've asked me before you know what's the problem why why can't we move in and I, basically it's because you haven't paid so as soon as you pay me I can call for the inspection and and, and in a lot of cities uh, some of them don't do this but a majority of them do where the contractor I have to call for my own inspections some cities will allow uh, a construction you know if somebody works for the construction company the superintendent or project manager to call for my inspection, but uh, I, I typically, if we're working in a different city, let the inspector know that I'm going to be the only one that can call for my own inspections, because uh, you can have somebody call for my inspection and circumvent me to get the process rolling, so they still don't have to pay me, yeah. so they drag me on. So all of this, you're, you're telling me a lot of things that indicate that you... Um, it's important for you to have your financing in order. Now, you've either stashed away a lot of money so that you can front it for a new job to pay your contractors before you get paid, acquire all of the fixtures and uh, materials that you need before you get paid for those. Um, are you just sitting on a stack of money, or do you have arrangements with uh, banks for, for doing financing and lines of credit? How does that whole thing work in your industry? Well, it uh, can work a couple of different ways. Uh, there's sometimes, uh, 99% of the time, uh, I use a line of credit. And I've established a line of credit with the bank uh, using equity and real estate that I have uh, as the collateral for the line of credit. So uh, we, I get invoiced every, every month. By the 10th of the month, all my supply house suppliers uh, I have to pay by the 10th of the month uh, uh, so I'm, I'm paying for bills I'm paying bills every 30 days and I'm getting paid every 45 to 60 to sometimes 90 days yeah exactly right so, so that's the problem uh, right yeah so that that is a problem you do have to have some money to, to float that and and what's sad a lot of times is you is you look at uh, accounts receivable that's where all your profit is so uh, and, you know, it takes a long time to ever for that to ever catch up. 
but uh, with with what we do, just for example, our suppliers, uh, every one of our suppliers offers at least a two percent discount if we'll pay them in full by the tenth of the month. So I can pay them in full, get a two percent discount, and borrow money from the bank at around four or five percent on my line of credit. So I'm still making money, even though I had to borrow money. Uh, you know, if I'm making two percent a month, equivalent of about that's twenty four percent a year that I'm making off my discounts. So it's easier for me to pay four percent a year for a line of credit than it is to pay. You know, I go borrow the money, pay four percent, and save two percent on my line of credit. That makes sense. Yeah. When you know, as you as you grow your company, and that's a question I haven't asked you: is Are you in the mindset that you want to uh, grow the quantity of projects that you take on and the size of teams that you deploy on jobs? Uh, maybe you're not, but um, with the question of financing, do you need to increase your uh, your access to financing in order to grow? Or do you kind of leap over the, those uh, chasms and kind of climb up that, that ladder in some other way? Well, uh, we can do it. Uh, I, I do it both ways. Uh, uh, as far as one other way you can, you can help pay for these, uh, ex- well, let's say the fixtures, for example, the, the fixture package, uh, like I said, it's pretty expensive. So on the project I was at a meeting today, uh, one thing we can do is work with our supplier and work with the uh, construction manager in this case and the owner or architect construction manager they understand that there's constraints in uh, you know with money and and large items that you have to purchase so what they'll do is is I've got a supplier that's going to send me an invoice and for my fixtures for this project even though we're not going to need the fixtures for another couple of months uh, they're going to send me an invoice. I'm going to turn in this invoice with my pay request to the school, to the owner, and on the next paycheck I get, we'll pay for the fixtures that are in a warehouse that at the supplier. So they will pay for materials that we purchase, even if they're not on site. So I can communicate with the supplier and say, if you invoice me now, you're going to get your money in about 45 days. I can negotiate to still get my discount, but not be out any money. Yeah. So, and it's all understood because they, I give them whatever they want. If they want to see the bidding documents and understand that, uh, you know, we're going to turn this in by the 20th of the month. We're going to get paid by the 10th of the following month. Uh, so, some of those things they'll they'll work with us, uh, and and you can get suppliers to actually agree to take their money when I get paid. So uh, in some cases you, you don't get your discount, but in other cases you know sometimes it doesn't matter if you're in a, if you're in a crunch and you need the money worse than you need the discount, or uh, you know so you can do that. And as far as growing the business. Uh, it's something we haven't really talked about at all. But what I what I've done with the plumbing business is I'm basically using it as a vehicle to uh, well, it, it's basically been a cash cow that has kicked off enough money to get me pretty heavily invested in real estate and different real estate deals. So 
uh, I'm basically using this as a vehicle to get me to a place that and, uh, I actually don't have to do it anymore. So uh, as far as growing, I, you know, it's kind of a two-edged sword. I can grow, but I, I, I still got a job, uh, and I just, I just have a bigger job now. Or I can look at, um, which I have been, look like you mentioned earlier about selling the business. Uh, and there's some obstacles there uh, to selling it, but uh, you know, I basically, you know, I'm using it as a vehicle to get me somewhere else so I can uh, do something that doesn't require as much work and makes more money. And, and that's time, you know, back to what we're talking about our customers and our clientele that we like to take on is the jobs I look for, and I know it sounds elementary, but I look for the job that requires the least amount of work for the most amount of money. <laughs> and, you know, and I, and I learned that from, from older older men in the construction trade. I look at them, and you got guys that are in their later 60s and 70s, and they do one specific segment of work in the construction industry. And I get to look at it, and I ask a question, why are you doing this? And I'm it always boils down to it's the least amount of work for the most amount of money. So uh, I, I decided to try to do that in my 30s and not in my 60s. <laughs> well, I was telling someone else who uh, was on this podcast who's actually a, a business person, more of the mindset of you. I was telling him that the difference between he and I was myself and my team, we love a, a really, really difficult project. Um, right. We work for the really difficult challenge. Um, and we somehow, as a consequence, get sometimes less concerned about the profitability and more sort of seduced by how are we possibly going to make this thing work for the person who, who's, who's asking for it. And I don't know. One of these days, maybe I'll come to my senses, maybe when I'm 60, like some of those other fellows, and, and uh, work on profitable jobs. But so far, I just keep getting seduced by wondering if I can accomplish what this person is asking me to do. Does that... Has that ever happened to you? It uh, it has. Uh, you know, even some of the projects I've taken on that are so big that I, uh, you know, or complex or you know whatever the case may be, that I just uh, I just would not be able to live with myself if I didn't try. The relationship where you want to, uh, uh, you know, basically that's it. Cultivate. The, uh, uh, cultivate a better relationship, basically, with someone that may have more work in the future. Well, I'm glad you made time to talk to me today. Um, you know, I, I wish that my industry was a little bit more structured in some ways, but on the other hand, uh, it's it's to the benefit of a lot of the people that that I work with, a lot of the clients and projects we take on. That there's no structure. Um, yeah. But at any rate, uh, Kevin, thanks again for making time and. Um, uh, I appreciate you uh, talking to me. and uh, Yeah, I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. All right. Well, take care, and I'll uh, talk to you soon.